live and talk in a way that makes it clear that not all Christians are aligned in a certain way politically, that we're not following this checklist of social issues, um, to seek community in some way, even though that is hard and triggering and for a lot of us quite broken. Having some kind of healthy accountability is real tender, especially if we've been hurt and we're protected because we don't want to get hurt again. Or we thought we totally could trust the person that ended up doing something uh, egregious or, or really hard. But I think that moving towards community or even saying to God, help. Like there've been many times in the past few years where even if I haven't been able to pray, haven't known what to pray, I just pray like help, like help. And that, um, I think that Anne Lamont has a book where she talks about that. So, but it's just a beautiful, a beautiful way to, to say something like, God, if this is true and real and you're there, like, like please help. And every time the, the way that that's been answered is interestingly through other people. My friends, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is episode seven of 2023. On the podcast today, we have Sarah Billups. And the conversation intrigued me because we're talking about orphaned believers. Maybe that's you. Many young evangelicals who are finding themselves kind of untethered, disillusioned, and ultimately orphaned from this sort of legalistic or politically co-opted opted church or just a church that they don't identify with for some reason or another so they don't know where to go and so they might feel a bit of a church orphan and so Sarah is one of those orphans and she knows sort of the grief the struggle of following Jesus while watching this happen to herself and those around her and we're going to be talking about that today I think it's an important conversation because I see it all around me right now and maybe this is you maybe this is someone you know and this will help connect them encourage them thank you so much to our sponsors who are making this season possible. Compassion Canada, lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name and scripture untangled. They are a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society that I've been involved with from the beginning. And you may hear a familiar voice or two on that podcast if you check it out. More on them later. But hey, if you aren't watching this video, if you're listening to the audio, I encourage you to go over to our YouTube channel, check out all kinds of stuff we've got going on there with podcasts and tutorials, just tons of free content content. We're going to be releasing a lot more this year. So if you hit subscribe, it helps you not miss anything that you may want to see coming from us. And ultimately, it's all to help you, serve you, encourage you, equip you in this complex world that we live in. So, hey, let me tell you a little bit about Sarah Billups as we dive into this. Sarah is a Seattle-based writer and cultural commentator whose work has appeared in things like the New York Times, Christianity Today, Exasis, and many others. She works to help wavering Christians remains steadfast through cultural storms and continues to hope for flourishing in the church in the midst of cultural division, political division, insert other division. So her first book is called Orphan Believers and follows the journey of a generation raised in maybe the 80s and the 90s in evangelicalism and is now reckoning with the tradition that raised them and searching for a new way to participate in the story of God. Is that you? Is that someone you know? Share, like, subscribe, Subscribe, connect to us, send us a message after you listen to this episode. Please enjoy the conversation with Sarah Phillips. Sarah Phillips, welcome to We're Made Digital. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think it's an important conversation. So thanks for joining on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Um, 
let's start with who, who the heck are you? <laughs> um, give some context to listeners on who you are, what is sort of your work and context? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm a writer based in Seattle. I grew up in the Midwest in the States in Indiana and moved out about 18 years ago. Um, so I think I'm officially official now, a Pacific Northwesterner. Um, but I write, <laughs> I write about faith and culture um, and specifically the state of the American church and yeah. where we've come from and where we may be going. And so I have a, a my first book is called Orphans Believers that comes out in January which happens to be a couple of weeks from now when we're recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, I mean, there's so many places I want to go in this conversation with you. But as I said before we hit record, the title of the book stood out to me because whether it's myself or other people around me, I have heard this idea of feeling like church orphans, maybe not orphan believers exactly, but feeling like, where do I belong? Where's my, where's my Christian family? I've heard that as like, a cry, a trend, a pain point of a lot of people in my own circles. And I thought, I've got to talk to you about this because you've done the writing, the work, and some deeper thought on this. And so um, maybe maybe let's just back up a little bit. And, and you talk about yourself as a writer um, mm -hmm. and culture commentator. Um, through the, the amount of time you've been doing this, there have been some major cultural shifts since you've yeah. started this career until now. So um, what are some of these larger things that you've been seeing? What are you commenting on? What is happening in culture? Let's start. Let's just go broad yeah, first before we go into this topic. Yeah, that's that sounds good. I mean, when I when I use the term orphans believer, I'm really just uh, talking about anybody that identifies as a Christian or grew up Christian or evangelical specifically is that's looking around the American church right now and wondering where Jesus is, you know? And mm. so the, the book itself really looks back at the eighties and nineties. I'm a, um, a member of Gen X, but like a kind of like Xennial, like I'm not a millennial, but I was born in the late seventies. So I'm kind of on the yeah, line. Yeah. And so for a lot of peers, you know, I, a lot of folks have left the church or leaving the church, wondering if they should go, um, wondering how to stay. And so um, I had the experience of trying to look back and understand what might have happened when we were coming up in the 80s and 90s that had led to some of these bigger cultural shifts. So specifically, I look at or I'm interested in end times culture, folks that grew up mm. kind of um, hearing messages that the world might end and that Jesus might return in our lifetime and how that's kind of threaded into talk today about Christian nationalism or um, a lot of fear about where the country's going. Um, and then I also look at culture wars, specifically abortion and single issue voting and some other hot topics. And then I also think a lot about consumerism and specifically how the church looks a lot like the market and what that means. And even on social media, digitally, how we show up and how we might be impacting each other um, as sort of wannabe influencers, real influencers, the role of celebrity, pastor, influencer, yeah. and where those all fit yeah. So the, the main buckets are kind of like end times culture, culture wars, and then consumerism. So these are huge buckets, which just feels like <laughs> each, each bucket we could spend our whole time talking about any of those. Um, 
but maybe broader before we go in, like, why does this matter to you? Like, can you, like, why do you talk? Yeah. Why these are, why these topics? Uh, if you can yeah, share more personally, great. like, why do you care about, <laughs> why do you care yeah. about this? Why, why does this why do angst totally. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a time in the history of the church where we're struggling to come to terms with what the church is and where it's going. And so there's a lot of factors and a lot of personal experiences that we all bring to the situation. Um, but I began to try to understand, um, for me living in a Western context, for me identifying as a middle-class, middle-aged white lady, <laughs> like in an American city, like what is it about our current time in history compared to what's happened uh, historically in the church and you know, what's going on now and where is where is God showing up even in the midst of a complicated time, a time of a lot of brokenness? So like personally, you know, we we moved out to Seattle, my husband and I, like I mentioned, almost two decades ago with um, with friends because we were interested in co-housing or intentional community. And this is kind of in the missional church era in the early to mid-2000s when Shane Claiborne yeah. was talking a lot about new monasticism and there was yeah. just a lot of momentum around around community or living differently. A lot of folks were returning to the city, kind of following Tim Keller and Redeemer's work around kind of urbanism and and Christians doing work um, in the middle of the city instead of leaving it for the suburbs. So we were kind of riding that wave in our 20s. But really quickly, when we landed in Seattle, um, we began to realize that it's a difficult place to identify as a Christian in that era specifically. Um, there's this podcast that John Mark Homer and Mark Sayers did a few years ago called This Cultural Moment. And they talk about how the city can assimilate you. Like, you know, we moved to Seattle thinking we were going to plan a community retreat center or a house church or something. But like very quickly, uh, my friends and I became kind of overwhelmed and this place felt a little mm. hostile towards Christians or we felt mm. a little hidden. A lot of us began to identify in that era as spiritual but not religious, which I think was language that maybe folks might use deconstruction today, you know, or a lot of us began to figure out who we were away from our parents or our hometowns for the first time. And so I spent about 10 years in what I would call a kind of spiritual desert where I was working in alt, alt media, I was writing for like alt weeklies and working for independent presses. I had a very like urban Seattle life, really good coffee. <laughs> um, but then on Sundays I go to church. So I had this really cloistered existence for a while and began to feel disoriented, lonely, and um, kind of confused about what it even meant to be a Christian and, and how my life looked any different. And so it was kind of like this kind of 20-something urban version of kind of how I grew up, which was we were in the suburbs and our lives didn't look that different, except we went to church on Sundays. So the faith was falling really flat for me, and I didn't understand what to do or why. So that was kind of some of my background context into, into exploring these pieces. Yeah, well, and you talk about this. I want to let's go into the suburb, urban, suburban thing for a minute because um, because that's sort of where your own context is. I resonate with that as well. Suburbs of the largest city in Canada is where I broadly grew up. I lived abroad a little bit for my dad's job, um, but broadly, I was a suburban kid um, from like uh, you know the commuter towns of this of the major city, and and then as you write about, you talk about 
on Saturday as a kid, you're at the mall and then on Sunday you're in church or like maybe you could, maybe other, others might say they're at the football stadium or they're, you know, they're at the, the hockey arena or whatever it is. Like you're sort of living between these two worlds, uh, as a kid growing up in this. Um, and, and I would say now, uh, more than ever, the church isn't, even for those Christian families, the church on Sunday isn't that assumed thing where I remember you weren't going to do the sports or whatever on Sunday morning because that was reserved for church. And I'm seeing less and less of that uh, cultural thing. And so uh, how has that kind of dual lives, you're sort of of the, of the empire and not of the empire, how has that played out and impacted the church? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, I think that oftentimes the church just mirrors, mirrors culture. And I think the way that, the way that folks that go to church or the way that we see values modeled in church might focus more on cultural expectations for some, for some congregations or denominations. Maybe that means we don't support this business or shop here, or we buy from this place. Um, you know, but the Christian bookstore, for example, or Christian conferences, the industry around around church or American Christianity really is pretty, um, it's just mere so closely Christian radio, kind of like these big kind of culturally immersive experiences um, are not very distinguishable from just sort of like secular counterparts, you know? And so I'm just, I was just searching and thinking, why doesn't this feel genuine? Why is it that when I was in the Midwest in a church and in a cultural Christian context where I looked on the around the pews and thought like, this doesn't, I'm not getting anything like challenging. I don't feel like I'm learning about Jesus. I, I don't understand why I'm here. <laughs> like how did that ex- one experience then contrast with coming to Seattle, where if you go to church it's like probably not by accident, you know, like the, the, the exhaustion that goes into explaining in a city like mine, and maybe you can relate to this too. I'm a Christian, but I'm not that kind, or I'm a Christian, but this is what yeah. I mean, or maybe I don't use that. There's language. an asterisk uh, footnote yeah. on, on what you mean by, or, and certainly I would say also the word evangelical. If you're, mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of people who want to use that word anymore, but if they are, there's an asterisk. And a footnote. <laughs> yeah, because, because in culture, evangelical certainly has become synonymous with with white and Republican, right? And so there's racism. There's a lot of, a lot there. And so that's something I think about a lot, actually, um, the idea of the term evangelical. And I don't want to sidetrack, but the I think the call of the church is to mirror the life of Jesus, you know, a, a brown-skinned refugee who lived radically, who... Uh, called us to come outside of ourselves, to get out of our heads, to serve other people. Like the way of Jesus um, is so beautiful and distinct and honestly is hard to find reflected, I think, in in broader American kind of consumerist church culture. Now, I find some comfort thinking about how when I take, so I've, I go to an Anglican church, I've, we've gone to the same place for 18 years and I really had a change about five years ago, um, I think like a lot of people began to explore contemplative Christianity, like a real formation, began to work with the spiritual director and do Lectio Divina and understand some more ancient traditions that have been really focused on listening prayer and, you know, just began to to quietly flourish in a way that 
um, then has let me do some sort of outside work or talk about some of these ideas publicly. But just like trying to look back and understand why I didn't have that kind of formation coming up and why a lot of church culture right now is really more of a marketplace and less of a invitation to radically change. You know, But when I'm in communion at my Anglican church, I think about all of the people that have come before us in that line, all of the people that will come after us, like it's just a beautiful, comforting kind of spanning out or zooming out of perspective. And I think about the same thing with the global church right now. Like my perspective is so Western, but there is certainly like radical displays of Christian community and like a lot of thriving in the global church. And so that also brings a lot of comfort and reassurance and a lot of hope. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you're mentioning that this idea of the global church. I uh, just was for just very recently over the Christmas holidays, the la- uh, a number of weeks I spent in Central Asia and got <laughs> to meet some people of the local believers there. And I'll cool. tell you, like, it's a totally different thing. I think when you think of all the doom and gloom of church in the West, um, there's this other story being told in other parts of the world of the kinds of uprise of believers and of uh, faith movements um, around the world. So it isn't all doom and gloom if you expand yourself a little bit. (laughs) But let's talk about this thing about, so we've got this suburban consumerism thing, but the culture war, you write about the culture wars of the 80s and 90s affecting today. I don't often think we couch it in these terms, like what's happening today and this disorientation or this disconnection we feel, the discombobulation. I don't know if it's often framed in light of how did we grow up in the 80s and 90s if we're the, I'm a millennial, if we're the millennials or the Gen X or the Gen Z. Um, Yeah. What happened there? Can you give us a little like refresher, give us our history refresher, what happened that affects us today? Yeah, I mean, in in the U.S. at least, you know, we tend to think about the sort of the way that republicanism and evangelicalism have in a lot of ways become synonymous as being a kind of forever thing, a forever partnership. But really, it was only in the 70s and 80s that that really solidified, the late 70s. Um, The moral majority began around that time. But really, Jimmy Carter was a Southern Democrat evangelical, but but he was, but evangelicals through their support behind Ronald Reagan, who was a much more masculine. I mean, this is what Christian Jimmy talks about in Jesus and John Wayne. This is certainly not my, my research or work, but really this embracing this kind of masculine, apocalyptic kind of tinged uh, politician that brought a lot of ideas of strength and economic prosperity. And so really the I I think because I grew up um, in the middle of that season, I have this perspective that it's always been that way. But it wasn't until uh, I was, it wasn't until I was, you know, born and a kid and those of us born in the 70s and 80s that it really took root. And, you know, the other, the other false belief that evangelicalism and, um, and abortion have always been kind of like aligned, that evangelicals have always been staunchly against abortion, so much so that we'll vote for whoever will vote against uh, abortion or that will will um, will vote like we would like or have the right people on the court is also relatively new. There is a political strategist named Paul Weyrich who was like throwing pasta at the wall, trying to see what kind of issue would stick for evangelical voters and really honed in on abortion. Um, so I think coming up a lot of what I was told, which was that, you know, I, I turned 18 and my dad and I drove to the 
Republican County headquarters in Ellen County, Indiana, and I was registered as a card-carrying Republican. And then we went next door and had chili wow. dogs. You know, it's like, so it's wow. like, there was no question. This was like a rite of passage in your yeah, upbringing. Like, welcome, mm-hmm. to adult- <laughs> like, welcome to adulthood. Here's your, here's, your, here's your Republican registration, you know, because there was no other issue than abortion. That, that was the, the single unifying issue because it was our job to speak for the voices of the unborn. And because of that, any other social policy or issue was not, not as important. There wasn't even a, it wasn't even close, you know? And so that really, I think is a lot of the factors that came together to make what feels like an inevitable alliance between American conservative politics and Christianity. Well, as we talk with Sarah about being an orphan believer, does the Bible ever feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe? Our latest season of Scripture Untangled, which is a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers. It's really to help you, inspire you, and to dive into the Bible for yourself and understand it. You can listen for free and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts these days, and you can visit scriptureuntangled.ca for more. ScriptureUntangled.ca. Encourage you to check it out. If you support our sponsor, it supports our podcast and helps bring you more episodes like this. Okay, back to the conversation with Sarah Billups. You know, but this idea of of a few issues shaping how people could vote, um, as opposed to you know, the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other issues that lawmakers are going to address over the course of their tenure in power. Um, but this one, these one or two or three issues being the issues that kind of were like a litmus test on, are you like a real Christian or not? And then meeting people who, um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a Canadian, so I'm looking from the outside in on this, but on, but it's not so different in Canada that there's these certain issues like this, these conservative issues. And, and I, I love how Tim Keller, although I don't agree with Tim Keller on everything, he talks about these things is like the problem with Christians is we don't fit in any of these boxes. Mm. There's like social, like we look on some ways like we're socialists and other ways, like we're capitalists and other ways, like we're, uh, you know, we're conservative politically, we're liberal politically. It's the point is actually Christians don't fit in any of these boxes. And he does a much better job than I can do articulating the dilemma of the Christian that doesn't fit in any of these political categories, but it has been, like a line in the sand drawn that has divided um, the church. And then it makes, yeah. I, I think then people come up and say, I don't identify with this. I feel bewildered. I feel orphaned. Um, and so can you tell us again, when you talk about this idea of the orphaned believer, um, can you give us a definition again? As you talk about this, what oh, do you sure. mean about being an orphan? Because I think yeah. people might use different words to mean the same thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you, just to, yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, we're, there are so many competing forces that can sweep us away. And if we're not grounded with real formation, if we identify as Christians, it's really hard to stay anchored, you know, to stay anchored to the message of Jesus. So I'm, I can really relate to that. But when I use orphaned believer, I, I just mean, folks that look around and wonder where Jesus is in the Western church, you know? And I mean that in a couple of ways, either you can feel culturally orphaned where maybe you're in a secular space. Well, I mean, maybe you're a Christian who engages in the culture um, 
in in cities. So I guess there's a cultural orphaning where you you kind of feel like you don't understand how to talk about your identity in a place where that's confusing or tiring. And then a spiritual orphaning, or maybe you look around your church if you live in the Bible Belt in the States or live in a place or go to a church where there's a lot of political rhetoric or you're hearing a lot from the pastor about culture war issues and you're wondering like, where's Jesus? Like, where's the gospel in this? Where's the message of hope and service? So you can have a kind of cultural or spiritual orphaning. And I, I will also say that the term orphaned believers, I love the band Over the Rhine, which is um, a band from Ohio. And they have this song called All My Favorite People. And the the lyrics include... Um, all my favorite people are broken, uh, orphaned believers, skeptical dreamers make welcome. You don't have to go. I just butchered it. but the, So it's sort of a literary way as a writer to, to talk about a, a, a feeling of spiritual or cultural estrangement or just like you don't quite fit in, you know, like you're just kind of a little outside looking in and wondering where your place is. Yeah, I, I think this word, the words I've heard people talk about, disoriented, bewildered, this like, where am I? What is this faith? Like, like it's... Uh, uh, like the thing that I believe or had grown up or thought it was, this thing feels different, but yet everyone keeps telling me I need to go to church and I'm looking around at all the churches in my, I'm, you know, you look around all the churches in your town and think like, I, I feel like morally opposed or, or socially or whatever it is. Just like there's pe people saying like, I don't even know where to go and find a church, but I want to be in, I want to be in a Christian community um, but it feels like there's this consumerism or politi politicization that makes you feel homeless. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I don't think I know anybody who has not had a severed re relationship, be it with a family member or a former pastor or someone important to them over what's happened with, with COVID and masks and the vaccine. And then in America, certainly with the election, with Trump and nationalism, um, it's discouraging if you're trying to be in a middle place <laughs> where you're trying to um, move towards Jesus and orthodoxy and maintain, maintain our historic faith tradition, but are pulled from both sides. I mean, I go to a, you know, I mentioned that I've gone to the same church for 18 years and we were experiencing what, I can only call it like a pressing where like, I feel like we're being pressed on all sides where sometimes mm. folks leave because we're talking about social justice in a sermon. And sometimes people leave because we're not talking about social justice enough in every sermon. And right. there's just a real clarifying though, that can come and a real unity. I mean, the thing about church that is interesting um, is that it's not like, I don't know, like, I, I think if we can find a healthy church, um, if that's possible, and what a grace and a gift when that can happen, because it is, it is increasingly rare, I think, you know, but I think the thing I like about church is that I'm with people I wouldn't, I don't get to pick or that maybe I wouldn't choose, like, maybe we're not going to brunch, you know, like, maybe we're not going to hang out and, and like chat about culture together. But like, yeah. that's so beautiful. Like, there's this beautiful way of being out of control of being with people you might not choose, but you like end up loving or mm. um, walking alongside or they support you and you them. It's just a way to get out of yourself and your comfort zone. I think um, if you can find a healthy expression of that, that is, I think, um, really important, especially for trying to kind of cross bridges of difference. And so my church has experienced kind of like a clarification but there's also within our church folks that have a, a mix of social and cultural views. And, and I think that's healthy. But I'll also say that, like, when I talk about the church, I just think the church is 
the what Jesus left us with. You know, it's like just the gathered body of believers. And so if that's true, that means that the church will always remain or a remnant will remain. But the question is, what do we do when us humans have made like a very fine mess of the church? And it's a painful personal thing. You know, like I've had certain experiences at churches where I've had to like walk out of the sanctuary because the the heaviness or weightiness or brokenness is like a palpable thing, mm-hmm. you know? And so I have um, experienced all sides of that coin. And so if folks are, I guess, if folks are in a healthy congregation, like that is a gift and grace. But if, if not, if it's not safe, if it's a season away, like, boy, is that a tender and good place. And in fact, I think a place where we can meet Jesus in solitude or isolation or weakness, I think there's an invitation to Jesus if you are bewildered or in a space where you've been hurt or harmed. I think that's, I think that's when Jesus is closest, you know. This idea of hurt or harmed, I think is huge because um, it seems like uh, from sort of this, the the powers that be in church land, it seems like a, an often like a disregard of the hurt and harm and sort of yeah. saying, you know, the, the deconstruction or the thing you're leaving, you're, you're leaving because of sin, you're leaving because of rebellion, you're leaving because uh, you can't forgive someone or something yeah, like it's not about you. It's because it's because you're only consumeristic um, and obviously it's much more complex than that. If this many people are doing it and experiencing it and saying, uh, I don't know how to keep going and doing this thing. And I, like I had, um, someone in my, in my life talk about how, um, you know, for the, for the third time in their adult life, they were at a church where the senior leader had a moral public significant failure. And, and then they had just come from bringing their kid to something where, um, you know, like a no, like R. Kelly, who's like a known sexual predator was like quoted and venerated. I don't, I, I, obviously the person doing this was completely unaware that Mm. like the person they were quoting was a sexual predator. But, but the, this woman came back and said, you know, we off to me after reflecting on this said, we often talk about saving or protecting our children from the world, which is why we all went to these youth groups in the eighties, nineties, two thousands, you know, say, you know, you got to protect kids from the world, but no one ever talks to us about protecting from the church. Like that there's this other side that a lot of actual church communities have been and are unsafe or led by um, egotistical or sinful, you know, sin, we're all sinful, but like people who are like, you know, saying one thing and doing the complete opposite. And so um, it seems like it, I'm, I'm ranting on to say it, it feels like this disregard. So how do you wrestle with that? And, and um, yep. in, in the context of, so people are orphans. Now what? <laughs> like, what, what do you yeah, what do you do with this? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a when when leaders um, are manipulative or abusive, it's it's a vicious and broken example of of like how we can hurt each other. And when we're in positions of power that remain unchecked, or when people, when congregations or members uh, have the impression that maybe they shouldn't say anything because that person, the pastor is like closer to God or maybe has some direct line or who are they, the power structure in place 
is is so deeply broken. And that just like when you were talking about that story, I was just feeling like grief and palpable sadness. And uh, yeah. And so I guess what it comes down to for me, like why I still identify as a Christian, like why I stay in the church, I just, I, I began to realize a, a few years ago, if it's, if what I choose, to, which what I believe is real, like if I'm building my life around um, Jesus, if I believe that there was uh, a virgin birth, that there was actually a person named Jesus that was resurrected from the dead. Like if I, if it's true, if I'm believing it's true, I, I think we can try to take it seriously. And if we can do that, and if we're at a point of strength or um, where it's available to us, if we have hearts burning for change and for reform, Mm. I think some of us are called to do the work of reformation from within the church. I think other folks are called to take a season away and to pursue Jesus and formation in some form of community, whether that's two or three people together, like whatever that looks looks like. I think that mm-hmm. community and accountability when it's healthy is like beautiful and important. Um, but I think that those of us, if we choose to believe this sort of wild story, and I, and I do, I'm convicted and believe that there is a, um, there is the, a way that we're changed, that we're invited out of ourselves, that we're invited to embrace weakness, lack of control, um, and trust that, Life might not be easy, but there's a lot of sweetness and empathy that comes through suffering. Mm. If I believe that the Christian story can really change me, can really change us, that means that um, if I can, I want to do work to make the church a healthier expression and a safer place for folks. Um, So when I say stuff like that, I hear myself and that almost sounds, is that naive? Like, what can one person do? But I think Mm. that... um, certain words, even like Christian have been co-opted by nationalists, like forget evangelical, like certain language even we're not comfortable using because it's like I mentioned, exhausting to explain. So I think that like finding a common language, finding each other, those of us standing in a middle place, wanting things to get better and change. Like, I don't know if that's naive or if, if that's stupid hope, or if that's just actually conviction, because if it's real, let's, let's do the work to make the change. So that's, that's kind of my own personal take, I suppose. I think I just went yeah. a different direction. <laughs> no, it's, it's good. And, and I mean, maybe, uh, you're sort of saying it, but not saying it. So to ask it more direct or direct, yeah, sure. you know, in your view, why do we still need the church today? Because mm. I, I appreciate what you're saying. And I like this idea that there are people who are going to make change from within and there yeah. are people who have to leave and yep. and do something else. And yeah, um, right. parents, grandparents, people around other leaders, people aren't going to understand all of that. Um, and people are yep. going to be judged whether you stay, whether you go. People love to have an opinion on everybody else's life. But um, yep. inherent right. in what you're describing is this need for the church. So yep. um yeah. Thanks for asking again. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Why That's- do we need the church today? Because it's yeah. like, should, would we be better off with, let's just disband the yeah. whole, you know, just go off and hang out in our homes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, that's, yeah. I'm glad you asked that again. I, I, we need the church. How I would answer that is because that's the church is what Christ left us with. And the only way the church will not exist is if it's a myth. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise it's here. And 
if it's right that the church will always exist because it was called into existence by Jesus, because he left us with each other, essentially, then if the church, that means the church is essentially shepherded and cared for by Jesus. And our, our call is to make that more into reality, you know? And so yeah. uh, the, I think the problem with the church is that we mess it up, not that it exists. I think that it exists as a gift and a grace, but the problem is how we sort of steer it in their own direction. Um, and again, you mentioned being in Asia and seeing kind of a beautiful expression of faith there. And so I kind of go back to our American context and think more about historic expressions of faith that have been complicated and messy and bloody. I think of colonization. I think of a, talk about messing up the church, but still through all of that time, there's been a thread that's remained and there've been times of, of renewal and of repentance and kind of up and down seasons. And I think that we're in our own expression of grief and difficulty where the church um, is causing, has caused pain because we've distorted the sort of beauty and purity of what it is. So I guess that's yeah. kind of where I would go with that question. Well, and and in context, I think a lot of people listening, we all kind of inherit, as you even kind of named some items from history, like there have always been uh, plenty of failures. There's lots of things that the church has failed about in the history of a few thousand years of church. Um, but But what is it about, you know, may, so maybe on one hand, what could we learn from coming out of previous, uh, rising from previous ashes, but yeah. also like th this thing that happened in our generation um, that mm -hmm. is still like a marker in the American, the Western church, the North American church today, this thing that happened in our upbringing. Um, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. You know, what do we what do we do with that in like, like, well, the church has always got some screw ups. It can't be perfect. Like it can it can yeah. lead to resignation or yeah. or a, sort of an apathy about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that we I think this is a moment for us to do the work of like if, you, if we identify as Christians and can look around, we've been hurt or we see how the church is for other people or both. Um, it's an invitation to know that we need to be shaped by the inside out. It's an invitation back to our own individual formation to try to work work for change. I mean, reformers throughout history, like looking back, I think we're following this kind of prophetic invitation um, to kind of press into God in new ways and to kind of set new paths. I mean, thinking about the desert mothers or fathers or... Mm. The Protestant Reformation, you know, in its beginning, or thinking about um, during the during the time of the Nazis when when Bart and you know when Christian leaders declared the Barman Declaration, which was just a statement from European Christians opposing the State Church of Germany. Thinking about the invitation for um, kind of scary and and mm. sort of new, carving new grounds and new way forward that are prophetic that. Um, help us press into God, even if there's more of a remnant of that expression that is pure and true, as opposed to kind of the sort of larger broken systemic failures around it. Um, so I think that we need more voices of justice that are compassionate, that want to work to change the church, um, especially women 
people of color, people that have been um, oppressed and left out of the conversation for a long time. And so mm-hmm. it just makes me you know, want to tell folks, like, if you've been left out of that story, like you are the very, like you are the very people. And I'm talking to myself as a woman, like we have the voices that can bring change and reform. And that, again, mm-hmm. brings me either stupid optimism or hope. And I'm going to go with hope. It really does. <laughs> Well, as we're talking in this episode with Sarah about this idea of a faith that is real, is authentic, that transforms us, that transforms communities, that follows after Jesus in issues of justice and poverty and care and love and all this stuff, this this idea of transformation, real transformation, what does it actually look like? Well, one of the places I think transformation is so evident and I've seen it is in the stories of former compassion-sponsored children, graduates or alumni, as we might call them, of the compassion program who are now adults and telling their stories of how sponsorship impacted them. Like Rhea, this is a woman that I've met. She's originally from the Philippines and she talked about knowing someone who's never met you, cares about you, it changes you. She has this powerful story of how she came from a really desperate situation and then someone sponsored her and it changed the course of her life and the trajectory of her entire family. It built Christ-like confidence in her empowered her to take hold of a future free from poverty. So today she's a passionate sponsor herself of a child in the community where she grew up and she advocates for kids. That's her work. So if you want to know more about child sponsorship and how it transforms lives, how to use your faith in Jesus in a way that actually makes impact in the world, transformative impact, go to compassion.ca slash if only compassion.ca slash if only the links are always going to be down in the show notes. Okay. Back to the conversation with Sarah Billups. <laughs> well, and I hear you're couching it though. And I think this is where, uh, the encouragement is the teaching moment for others listening is like, do you know any church history people? <laughs> and I, you know, do you know, uh, what the patterns have been? Do you know, um, you know, I think we can get so despairing when we just look at our own small yeah sliver of the story and um both like the global church and what's happening um and the power of like good news actually like being good news where i think we can often we i often say we can make it sound like the worst news in the world when it should be the best news in the world but like in other parts of the world we see now currently today the global church is expanding it's not shrinking what's going on there like do you know have you ever read have you ever heard you know those stories are available to uh, to us to access as a hopeful marker, they're not doing it perfectly either, but, but there's some hope there. Uh, it's not all doom and gloom. And then maybe these other pieces you say of like reformation history, um, the ways in which our spiritual forefathers and foremothers have, have changed things and have said, it doesn't have to be this way. What if we could do it better differently? We're going to, you know, we'll find our own way to screw it up, but we'll do it not the way you screwed it up. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Yeah, that's right. Like with the Reformation, it was really like speaking against the excesses and abuse and clergy scandal of the time. Um, And, uh, and, you know, there's just, you're right. There's so many historical examples. I mean, thinking about St. Francis, uh, who was speaking, like, I think in the maybe the 1200s, like the early 1200s against the established wealthy church as an institution and reacting against that and offering a critique and a way forward. There are real examples in our past about 
um, people that did things that had not been done before. And so I have to say that the season that we're in and where, we, where we've coming from, where we are right now is moving towards that time. And, you know, right. I think that I hear people say things like at the start of the pandemic, oh, finally a revival's coming or like kind of predicting mm. like this is, it's really bad now. So clearly it's going to get better. But you know what? Like, I think sometimes what if I do this work for my whole life? And what if those of us that are trying to create change do this work and never see that change happen? Like, mm. what if what if there's no fruit? What if it's not like I get to at one point actually see some sort of big revival or change? Is it worth it? You know, like I think about stuff like that, not to be pessimistic, but to be realistic. Like, and you know what? Totally. Because it's not about us seeing some fruit. It's about us being faithful where we are and where we've been planted in this time of history and believing if it's truly true, then we want to work to make it better. Maybe that's for our kids or sometime in the future. There's just a freedom yeah. when you're not trying to control change, but just trying to live faithfully mm. where we are. Well, and, and when you, there's an urgency to the work, but, but the, but the fruit cannot be urgent. What I mean is what I mean, right. you remind that's us right. is that like, we may be planting seeds and someone else will see the fruit, um, which is discouraging and beautiful all at once. <laughs> it's very human. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just human. Um, you, uh, you talk about in your book, that spiritual formation is an antidote to end times culture, culture wars, and consumerism. Um, talk talk about that. We're we're kind of circling that topic, but what do you mean by spiritual formation is a bit of a buzzword right now. So yeah. uh, what do you mean by that? And how do you yeah. see that as an antidote to the situation yeah. we're in? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, the way that we're formed spiritually, the, the, the pieces that come into our life, into our brain, into our heart, what, what fills us up, where we, where we learn and grow and are energized, what, what factors form us, what powers and forces form us. I mean, like I mentioned with that mall as a kid, I was formed spiritually by the mall and by, by church on Sunday. Like, so taking a moment to look back and to look honestly at our life and think is my career or vocation or identity forming me? Yeah. Is that in a healthy way? Sometimes when I think about my vocation or career, how I'm being formed as a writer, I think about the digital spaces I move in, the way I am challenged and think about ego or showing up or failing or building platform. Th those are real forces in the life of someone trying to publish a book. So just for a personal example, you know, but um, mm -hmm. I think that the values that Jesus talks about on the Sermon on the Mount, like how how we're shaped by Jesus and able to live out those values really is an arrow towards how we're being formed. And so nobody, I, I, nobody's, I don't think that the answer is, you know, moving to a farm somewhere and like trying to check out from culture and protect my family and to kind of try to do my best to just get through and sort of like retract from culture. Like how do we live where we are? In the yeah, like the Amish that? Mennonite theology would say that's yeah. what you do. You, yeah, you yeah. exit culture. There's something beautiful about the community that forms within those, within those, those groups of people. So it's not really a critique necessarily against Amish folks, but it's more like for, for me at least, or for many people that came up in the world that I came up in and that live right now, how do we look around right where we are? Um, if we're not able to, don't have access to sort of remove ourselves, don't have that support in place. And really, I'm convicted that that we're called to be in the world and not of it, meaning in the world and flourishing if we can, you know, but that's hard. And so end times culture was, I think, about fear, um, 
that was projected from the Cold War and from the idea of an enemy in, in Russia or this sort of imminent return of Jesus mm. so we can kind of like leave bad stuff behind. This is, I'm talking about premillennial dispensationalism, the Left Behind series. Yeah, and the environmental um, stuff. Like, well, we're, right. we're in the 90s. We started to really hear in the 90s, like the environmental stuff, the endangered species, the, you know, whatever. Totally. Oh, well, it doesn't matter because we're exiting Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like I was told as a kid, Earth Day isn't that big of a deal because we're just going to debt. <laughs> so like, don't don't spend too much time worrying about that. Yeah. You know, it really yeah. was deeply problematic. But um, formation, I think, grounds us again in the idea to move in the world and to love the world and to care for it. You know, and so then when I think about culture wars, you know, I think we want to make different political parties or different social issues into like the bad guy or to kind of like demonize certain people or ideas. I think formation can be this way to build empathy and understanding and certainly to take the plank out of our own eye <laughs> before we do yeah. any sort of work judging someone else. And then finally with consumerism, I mean, that's such a, a big one because again, there's like these competing forces that shape us, but it's a way to be anchored and flanked in the way of Jesus, which certainly resists some of those political and market forces, you know, and a way to, instead of buying right. into the industry around the church to make different choices with how we give our money and give our time. Right. So those who feel like they're orphaned, they feel like they have no spiritual home or the one they, they, they were in, they can't stay in. Um, it's a, it's a terrible and lonely kind of feeling. It's a feeling you want to fix. It's a feeling you want to move past. Um, so maybe we'll just close with, you know, do you have either like an action or an encouragement, you know, um, to those who are feeling, those who are listening, they're listening to this episode because of this topic and they feel this way. They don't want to feel this way. Um, what would your, what would your word be for them today? Yeah. I mean, if you're in a, if you're in a place where you are able to identify as a Christian, to talk about that in a place that feels safe with coworkers or neighbors, I think that one, like one action step or practical thing we can do is to live and talk in a way that makes it clear that not all Christians are aligned in a certain way politically, that we're not following this checklist of social issues. Again, we mentioned before the word evangelical being synonymous for many folks for good reasons with republicanism and with um, racism, like living practically in a way that shows that Christians can actually are called to a different, a different way forward um, to give a true picture of the faith. That's not kind of rooted in this co-opted kind of Christian, Christian, Christianish culture is one really practical, hard, but beautiful thing. And then the other thing is, um, to seek community in some way, even though that is hard and triggering and for a lot of us quite broken, um, but to not give up, to seek online community, to even if it's another person that you can meet with or a spiritual director, just like to talk mm -hmm. to people. I think that being able to do that even with a friend, regardless of whether or not you're able to be in a traditional congregation in this season, is um, immensely valuable. And having some kind of healthy accountability is real tender, especially if we've been hurt and we're protected because we don't want to get hurt again. Or we thought yeah. we totally could trust the person that ended up doing something uh, egregious or, or really hard. But I think that moving towards community or even saying to God, the last thing I'd say is to pray 
help. Like there've been many times in the past few years where even if I haven't been able to pray, haven't known what to pray, I just pray like help, like help. Mm. And that, um, I think that Anne Lamont has a book where she talks about that. So, but it's just a beautiful, a beautiful way to, to say something like, God, if this is true and real and you're there, like, like, please help. And every time yeah. the, the way that that's been answered is interestingly through other people. So hmm. those are a few things I'd say. Sarah, if you want to send people to find your writing, your book, uh, more of how you're thinking about this and wrestling this through, where do you want to send them on the internet today? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm active on Substack. I have a monthly letter called Bitter Scroll that folks can find me on. And I'm also act- active on Instagram at Sarah.Billups. Awesome. Uh, and then I have my book, Orphaned Believers, which you can find where books are sold. That sounded very salesy. <laughs> <laughs> I've that's, never said that that's before. That's so good. Books are sold. <laughs> yeah, wherever people buy a book, go, go figure it out. People have figured that out before, but, but especially like tagging in some of your own, like, as you said, the sub stack and th- stuff like that is so yeah. good. We'll link all that in the show notes. Sarah, Thank thanks you. so much. Important topic. Um, a, a kind of a, a conversation we're having in the midst of it happening. And so... Um, you know, perhaps if we were to, to talk about this pre COVID or to talk about this five years from now, it's going to look and shape. It's kind of a continuing situation that is changing, but I'm just grateful for your work and your thinking on this and that you do it with real empathy for, for people who are feeling this way and experiencing this. So thanks so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Sarah for that important conversation. If this resonates with you, share with a friend, pass it around on the internet. We would love more people to know about this episode. It's how um, people find it is usually just through your recommendations, your shares, your likes, your comments. Throw us a line. We'd love to know what you're thinking about this episode. Next up on the podcast next week, we have Dr. Mike Bechtel. He's an expert in communication. Like how do we actually talk to each other? How do you interrupt a conversation without being rude? How do you get out of a conversation you don't want to be in anymore? How do you do the nuance and the dance of social dynamics and communication? It's not easy, but he gives some great practical tools, especially for introverts out there. So thanks so much to our sponsors, Compassion Canada and the Canadian Bible Society's new podcast, Scripture Untangled, for making this whole podcast season possible. Check us out on YouTube. We would love to see you hit subscribe. We'd love to grow that channel more and more as we're producing content. We hope that's serves you, that helps you, that inspires you, that is very practical, but also very real in helping you do the thing that you do and wrestle through the big questions that we're all talking about right now in the digital world as Christians who are trying to figure it out. So my friends, thanks so much. And we'll see you on the next episode with Mike Bechtel.